from the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We're back to uh, Jesus' sermon. We're in the fifth chapter. We took a two-week detour because of the past holiday resurrection of our Lord, and we're now again in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I've chosen a creative title for this sermon, Salt and Light. (laughs) In these verses, Jesus uses two metaphors to tell us who we are and what our function is in the world. And this applies only to those who are beatitude people, people blessed with salvation, people who have been favored by God. We alone are salt and light. The first figure of speech is explained in verse 13, and it is our heading. It is being salt. People commonly refer to those whom they perceive to be good and honest people are a group of good and honest people, and you've heard it, as the salt of the earth. Jesus, however, says that the only genuine salt of the earth people are his disciples. He is emphatic about it, in fact. The grammar allows us to render the verse this way. You and you only are the salt of the earth. This is a divine revelation or evaluation, not the mere assessment of fallible human beings. What I mean by that is this. When people in their fallibility say about a group of people whom they perceive to be honest and good and moral and all of that, as the salt of the earth, Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. Only my disciples are the salt of the earth. Further, our Lord uses a plural pronoun here, and we could say y'all. And we say y'all because we need to distinguish between the singular and the plural, obviously. And so he's meaning all true Christians. He's meaning all his disciples. All of us are the salt of the earth. And you will also observe that in this verse is a present reality. The you all are the salt of the earth. That's present tense. That is right now. Because you've been regenerated by uh, the word of God. You've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit because you're a true follower of Christ. You are right now salt of the earth. It is who we are. Being salt and light has meaning. It means that we're distinct from fallen humanity. The people with whom we rub shoulders in the ordinary affairs of life, business dealings, in our work life, in our social life, people who 
have not experienced a divine transformation as we have, they are not salt and light. We are, we are distinct from them. We're different from them. This distinction between us and Jesus' disciples and everybody else in the world who is not may be illustrated by salt being sprinkled on french fries or on an egg. Think about it like this. Literal salt makes a difference with respect to the flavor on the food item. Our presence in the world as salt and, uh, makes a difference in the world. In fact, we're the only difference makers. People always say, I want to make a difference. And my thought is, oh, if it's not eternal, it's not a real difference that really matters. How do we make a difference? There are a number of ways that have been proffered by Bible students. They use the various characteristics of salt to explain the comparison of believers to salt. Here, let me give you some. One, we are a preservative as salt is. We preserve the world from further decay. There is some merit to that because our very presence will cause people sometimes not to say some stuff that they would ordinarily say. Just because we're around, they won't do some stuff because of us. So there's that retarding effect that our presence creates in and among those who are not salt. Others suggest that as literal salt stings a wound or sore, we as metaphorical salt sting the conscience. The conscience of sinners, our, our godly life creates a problem that stings them. It bothers them because we're around and, and they see the godliness and they see all of that and they know they're not. Another view is influence. And I'm going to couple this one with the one I'm choosing. And influence. We influence people. Assault will influence your steak. The flavor of the steak by its presence on that meat. So we have an influence in the world. As I've suggested, all of these have a measure of truth. But the biblical and immediate context suggests that our function as salt is one of purification. Let me look at the, uh, with you the biblical context. First, salt's prevalent use in the Old Testament was as an agent of purification. I could give you a list of, of scriptures. I'll just give you a couple. Leviticus 2, Exodus 30, 35. I'll give you one from the New Testament. Make it three. You won't, you'll forgive me for going beyond the two, right? Mark 9, verse 49. So in the Old Testament, purification seems to be its, or is the prevalent use of salt. The immediate context, the Sermon on the Mount itself, provides an additional basis for the meaning of purification. You can see it. Remember back up in verse 6 of Matthew 5, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They, they want the purity that righteousness brings. That's what happens when a person comes to Christ, when a person's been transformed. There is that longing for 
righteousness. 5.8 of Matthew. Blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart. Purity of our lives influences others too for the gospel. We've been made pure by the truth of Christ. We've been made pure by being regenerated. That is born again. And our pure lives influence others for the gospel. Pure lives equal righteous living. We couple that with the gospel proclamation. And we spiritually affect the world. These are pure lives and the gospel are the means Christ has given us to do so. These are the ways in which we function as salt. As salt and light, I want to let you know this, we have not been charged with improving the moral character of the culture. We're not to change the culture. Super, superficial moral change is deceptive. Follow me now. Mere moral behavioral change, outward morality, conformity to a moral standard can give a person a false sense of being right with God. Amen. They can clean up the outside. They can stop doing this, that, and the other thing, and they think somehow they've got it right with God. That's why that's deceptive. Sadly, where we're living in our time today, there are things called, a thing called culture wars. I'm not at war with the culture. I'm going to tell you all something. I, I know what's wrong with the culture. It's populated by sinners. And sinners don't need me to help them to be just morally improved sinners. They need me to help them become a child of God. Outward morality doesn't change anybody where it counts. Jesus tells a story about a demon that is exercised from a man. And his, his, the demon is exercised. He went and got seven other de de uh, uh, demons more wicked than himself. And came back and reoccupied. He calls it his house. You know it outside, but nothing happened on the inside. Some of the most outwardly moral people ever were the Pharisees. Jesus called them sons of hell. They were religious. They were outwardly, outwardly moral. But their righteousness was just simply that which was external and did not qualify them from heaven. Notice in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Theirs was all on the outside. They were masters at cleaning up the outside, the outside of the cup and the platter, but there was dead men's bones on the inside. A morally improved sinner who has not repented of his sins and trusted Christ alone as his substitute, as his Savior and Lord, is still hell-bound. That's what's sad. That's why we're not called 
to change the culture. We've been mandated to proclaim to the culture the gospel. Jesus' final words to his people before he ascended back to heaven after his resurrection found in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We are to make disciples. A disciple, a true disciple, is one who has been born again. He believes the gospel. He has turned from his sins and is following and is learning from Jesus Christ. Christ has become Lord of his life and he is growing in holiness. That is a true disciple. He has been supernaturally transformed on the inside by the gospel. He is not the same person he once was. He is more than just one who is externally moral. He is moral on the inside too. By the way, that's very important because, you know, you can have the facade, but you look into the building. But what Christ does, he gives you more than a facade. What you are externally emanates from what you are internally. Let me say this about the culture. The, 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 the culture. Okay, maybe I'll say more than one thing. Let me tell you all something why we got to stick with just proclaim the gospel. I'm old enough to remember when there was a thing called the moral majority. I remember the debates because I was aware of what was going on. Always loved current events, history, all that, so I was cued in. And the problem with it was America, they said how terribly moral it was. I'm thinking, boy, just look at it now. It's worse now than it was back then. If you heard a profanity on television, it's whoa. That is just common. The stuff that is permitted and celebrated now, oh no, nobody, people had a general consensus, oh no, 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 we, we, we don't do that. Interestingly, it didn't affect the culture. It made it better. The culture has gotten worse. You know why? It's going to keep getting worse because the Bible says it is. Men are going to go from bad to worse. Second Timothy. The culture is our mission field. We do not change it. But what we do by means of the gospel, we change people. People are taken out of the culture just like you were. God is calling a people out for his name. That's what he's doing. He is saving his people. And throughout history, God is plucking out people he intends to save from the world, from the culture, from society. He said, you're now mine. He's not going to fix the culture, but he's sure enough fixing people. Now, let's move on further. We must be aware and beware that we live in a morally and spiritually toxic world. Can I get an amen? amen. Y'all know that. Now, notice what our Lord says. 
But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Chemically, we know that salt, sodium chloride, is very stable and does not easily degrade. Now, somebody said, well, why would Jesus be speaking about something like that? What would he know about that? It's first century. We don't know all the chemistry that we know today. Let me tell you all something. Jesus knows more about chemistry than Dow Chemical. You know why? <laughs> because he created chemicals and minerals. It says in John 1, 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, when Jesus says this here, how can it be made salty again? You've got to understand the background of Bible's settings. It's very important to understand that, to comprehend what is being said. There's a reason why Jesus says to his audience who are listening to him that day, that day how can it be made salty again? You see, everybody in Jesus' day knew that sometimes salt from the vicinity of the Dead Sea was contaminated with gypsum. They all knew that. If not properly processed, it could lose its effectiveness and become tasteless. So everyone in his audience, they hurt him because they knew the background. When you study the Bible, just a principle here, keep that in mind. Find out what the background is. The cultural, historical background. And what Jesus is saying here is believers can become ineffective by contamination. We can become ineffective by pollution. That Greek word that's translated tasteless means to play the fool. It means to become foolish. Now, it has nothing to do with one's intellect. You can have an Einsteinian intellect, but play the fool. One who plays the fool is one who permits the world to corrupt him. Rather than being the influencer, the influencer is being influenced by the world's philosophies, by the world's sins, by the world's evil. He or she behaves sinfully. Look at it like this. You're in a boat with a paddle. And you're surrounded by water. Everything's fine when you're paddling and the water is outside your boat. The problem comes when you spring a leak in your boat. You're in trouble. When a believer begins to be influenced by the world, they're taking water on their boat. Let me give you a, a biblical um, illustration. Remember Lot, Abraham's nephew? Abraham, uh, Lot progressively moved towards Sodom and eventually just settled down in Sodom. Remember that? Sodom was a wicked place. God had to destroy it. He had to wipe it out in judgment. And Lot was sitting there and the angels came to Lot and said, uh, get your family ready. I'm gonna get you. We're going to get you out of here because God's going to destroy the city. And Lot was telling his family, he told his couple of sons-in-laws, and they thought he was joking. You know why? Because Lot hadn't been serious about spiritual things. Now all of a sudden he's talking about divine judgment. Really, Lot? 
Remember, uh, some angels came and the men of the city in their homosexual desire wanted to uh, relate to them sexually. And Lot said, listen, don't do that to these men. These men, they're guests in my house. Here's my daughter. His morality was corrupted. He had been in Lot so long. But he was a believer. However, his thinking was corrupted by the sinfulness of the city. And the culture got into him rather than him influencing the culture. Uh, when a professing Christian life is not pure, when it's not righteous, it comes tasteless, ineffective. Now, let me add this. Uh, becoming tasteless doesn't mean that a genuine Christian forfeits salvation. Salvation removes the eternal consequences of sin. But it does not remove the temporal consequences of sin. You're saved, you're on your way to heaven. That's certain if you're genuinely saved. But it does not remove the consequences that you'll experience because of your sin. One of which is this. If a person isn't what they ought to be as a believer and they live like that, they're going to become ineffective. They'll become tasteless. They'll become useless for the kingdom. You say, well, I'm on my way to heaven anyway, so I'm not going to give too much thought to it. Let me suggest this to you. If you're a child of God, do understand he will not let you just get it by. There's a thing called divine chastening. Now, Jesus goes further. When he says, how can it be made salty again? Ask the question. And <laughs> he says, it is no longer good for anything. Except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Such an ineffective life. It's not good for anything to be trampled. Again, we have to look at the background to understand Jesus' words here. Ruined or tasteless salt was worthless salt. It was thrown out as gravel on the beaten paths where grass could not grow anyway. Couldn't be even used as fertilizer. <laughs> so they just used it. There's a beaten path. There's where the traffic goes, footpath, the pedestrians. And so we'll, we'll put it there. And then men trample on it. And this practice connected in Jesus' thinking to the reality of the tasteless believer. Those who claim to be followers of Jesus become tasteless, ineffective in the eyes of a non-believer for the simple reason that unbelievers see the compromised life. They see the inconsistency between words and actions. And they repudiate that person. Last thing you want to do is be a person whose life of hypocrisy observed by the world. And believe you me, they check us out, don't they? Amen. They want to know if what you preach is what you practice. And they can be like some bloodhounds. They can sniff it out, the hypocrisy. Being salt is what we are. And Jesus warned, don't, don't be tasteless. Well, in verse 14, he says this, you are the light of the world. The same emphasis, it's emphatic, you and you alone are light of the world. It's a different metaphor to convey a different aspect of our being. Salt is subtle, light is obvious. 
the presupposition in Jesus' statement, you are the light of the world, is this, that the world is dark. You need light and darkness. The world of lost men is enshrouded in darkness, spiritual and moral darkness. Darkness, biblically, is symbolic of sin, is symbolic of evil, is symbolic of ignorance, all of which defines unsaved people. They're ignorant of God. They sin against God. They don't have the true knowledge of God in them. Light, however, symbolizes truth and righteousness. That's what we have as believers. In fact, 1 Thessalonians calls us the sons of light, does it not? Jesus said, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. Here he calls us the light of the world. Uh, how is that? Well, this is how that is. He's the light of the world, yes, but we're light of the world as well. But our light is a derived light. The illustration is one that people use all the time. The moon shines at night. It does not produce its own light because it has none inherently. It reflects the light of the sun. We're like the moon. We reflect the light of the, of the source, Jesus, who is like the sun. So we reflect his light. And when Jesus came, he came and brought light into the world. In Matthew chapter uh, 4, verse 16, a prophecy about his coming. Verse 16 it says this, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. <laughs> and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Speaking of Jesus, it's prophecy of him. You recall that? People um, inescapably in the dark, unless they escape by Jesus Christ. There is no way to to get out of it apart from him. In John chapter 12. Verse 35. And one or two others in this passage. I want you to see. What Jesus had to say. He says. Verse 35. Jesus said to them. For a little while longer. The light is among you. While you have the light. So that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe. Here it is, verse 36. Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Jesus says, that's how you do it. I'm present with you and you want to get out of the darkness of sin and rebellion and evil and ignorance. Come to me. Verse 46 of this same passage, John chapter 12, Jesus says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. He alone can deliver from the darkness. Ephesians 5, 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That defines us. We're light in the Lord. And that's what Jesus has done in saving us. Ephesians 5, 8. It says in verse 9, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. 
When you are a child of light, these are the things that will come out of you, will be reproduced in you, will be seen in you. Goodness and righteousness and truth. You'll be changed. It won't be the same. That's the light that our Lord is talking about. We live in a dark world, right? Now, I mentioned a moment ago about culture. We're, we're in the midst of a toxic culture. We're in the midst of a rebellious culture. We're in the midst of a, a world that hates God. And Philippians 2.15, let me tell you, this isn't new. We think every, it's new because it's in our particular generation. No, it's not. This stuff's been going on since the fall, right? Amen. Philippians 2.15 in part says, we appear as lights in the world. In verse 14, back there, if you will, in Matthew chapter 5, our Lord says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Again, I'm, I'm taking you back to this because I want to get you to thinking along. Why would Jesus talk about a city sitting on a hill? Cities were built on hills because there it was cool. Not cool in the sense he's cool. No. <laughs> Thought I better explain it. Somebody said, oh, I didn't know that was, they had this cool factor about where houses were built. No, 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 no. It's not that at all. It means that the sea breezes acted like air conditioning. That's why they sat him on the hill. So from the sea, here comes the breeze, and the homes was set on the hill, and, and it cooled them off. Because there's an arid land there in Palestine and Israel. That's why they did it. So Jesus said, the city is built on a hill. Our city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You see, this is why. By day and by night, cities stood out on the landscape. By day, they could be seen because of their elevation. You couldn't miss them. You're driving up, you know, in your, your car, and you say, oh, there it is. You know what I'm saying. I don't mean literally. You're on your donkey, really. <laughs> and you're, you're riding on your donkey and say, there's the city. Oh. If you came at night, you know, like the man that came to a friend at midnight knocking on the door, hey, you got some, Frank came, got some bread. It's dark. But you can see why. Because at night they could see the lights shining within the homes. They had these little terracotta lamps, little clay uh, lamps, and it filled it with oil, and it took a little wick and put it in it. Then there was a protrusion from the wall, and it set it on the wall, and that gave light. So you come to the city, it's elevated at night. Everybody's still up, uh, whatever they're doing, and they're probably reading the Torah, perhaps. And you can see all the, the, the lights in the city. That's why it couldn't be hidden. So whether by day or by night, the city couldn't be hidden. It was impossible for it, it to be missed. That was the nature of the city. That's why Jesus said that, and that's what he's saying about us. Because we're light in the Lord, it's impossible for us not to shine. It is our nature to shine. It's our nature to shine the light that Christ has given us. By, and we are that by nature now because of salvation. Just like water is wet. It's his nature, right? Fire is hot. That's his nature. True disciples of Christ shine. And people in darkness need us. They need to. See the light. See, in darkness, you know what it's like at, at night. Haven't you ever had this experience? I know you have. You get up in the middle, and it's dark as all get out, and you see things. You think, oh, 
that's that. Oh, then, but in the daytime, you realize it's nothing but a chair. See, what the light does, it gives us God's perspective. People in the dark do not have his perspective. We share the light of truth by our life and by the gospel. Verse 15. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Here's an illustration Jesus usually says, he's in effect saying, do not conceal yourself. The purpose of a lamp is to give light. It's nonsensical to light a, uh, a lamp and then cover it over to hide the light. A disciple, a disciple exists to shine, does he not? We must not hide our light. Dietrich Bonhoeffer remarked, quote, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him, end of quote. You say, well, how can a believer hide his light? How do I hide my light? Let me give you a couple or three reasons or ways it can be done. Number one, not speaking about Christ for fear of offending others. We hide our light when we fear persecution. We hide our light when we're concerned about our reputation. We hide our light when there is spiritual indifference. Those are some of the ways believers hide their light. We're not to do that. The light is shining. That's his purpose. And it, and it gives light, verse 14, to all who are in the house. Just as that light shines in a house, we're to shine or extend the gospel to all in the world. Now in verse 16. Jesus says, let your light shine before men. And it goes on. You know the text. In the Greek, the first word is so, literally. And it's really so and shine, present tense. Expand the definition of light. Deeds, words, actions. We're not the spotlight. It's not for us. We're not to have a clig, clig lights on us. It's not the point. It's God, our Father. That men may see and recognize that it is he who has transformed us. And that redounds to his glory. You recall 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our objective. That is the primary objective for the believer. He is to live to glorify God. He is to be central in our life. He is to be central in everything we do. It's to glorify him by what we say, what we do, how we live. All of that is to glorify him. That's the point of being a Christian. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Mundane stuff. And when you just go into some restaurant eating some food, they put before you, you even do that to the glory of God. We're to display his character in our life. It's the point and purpose. 
the Westminster Confession of Faith has, as you know, the Q&A, a list of them, question and answers. Question, what is the chief aim of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's it. Uh, if you have a, a question as to why am I here? The, the philosophical stuff like, oh, I, what's my purpose? Well, if you're a Christian, you don't ask those questions. You know why you're here. You First, you were born, then the Lord saved you, and you're here to glorify him. That's it. The reformers, <laughs> they had these slogans to um, tell us truth in memorable ways, like sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone, for example. They had another one. Sola Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. They understood that. To God alone be the glory. What that means is when we are giving God glory, it has uh, impact two ways. When men who are lost see what God has done in us because of our transformed lives and they hear the gospel, God uses that in his own will, time, and way to bring them to himself. Then they join us in glorifying him. And that is the point. That's why we're salt and light. That's why he saved us. To function in these ways. In this corrupt and dark world. And as we do. We align ourselves. With a. Eternal purpose. And we bring glory to God. And then when you do that. Then you know sure enough. Why you're taking your next breath. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your truths through the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ in this inestimable message, sermon that he preached. Profound truths here. May they continue to resonate these words of his in our hearts, shaping our thinking day by day. As we've been reminded, deepen our grasp of these truths so that we might recognize more fully who we are in a world that's gone astray. Depraved, perverse culture filled with fallen men who need the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're the exponents. You've saved us to do that in part. May we be faithful in fulfilling the task. We pray for any in this room at this moment under the sound of my voice who's without the Savior. Pray you open their blinded eyes that they may see the truth of Christ. Grant them perception. They may embrace him as Lord and Savior. We pray for any in this room who needs a church home who's already salt, light, but unchurched, needs to join the other grains of salt and serve here 
for the advancement of your cause and them here. We pray you do these things, Lord, ultimately, as we've discussed, for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.